0: This season, we'll be further exploring each topic, hanging out with experts and enthusiasts of all kinds for more strange stories, social commentary, and the myths that make America tick. I'm your host, Chelsea Weber-Smith.
1: Hi, everybody. I am not your host, Chelsea Weber-Smith. My name is Miranda. I'm producer here at American Hysteria, and I'm going to ask Chelsea some questions today about season four specifically, which we just ended. And uh, Chelsea, thanks for being here. Thank you for asking me questions today. (laughs) You're very welcome. I'm just going to jump right into a heavy hitter here. How did this season affect you psychologically? (laughs) Oh... Well, let's see. Are you
0: okay? Uh, am I okay? That's a nice thing to ask me. Um, no, <laughs> I'm never okay. Um, I am glad that the season has ended. Um, toward the end of every season, it always feels like I'm crawling across a desert and slowly turning into a skeleton. Mm-hmm. Um and there aren't even any mirages for me to put my faith in and then have my faith dashed. Um, no, I'm just kidding. It's, it's a wonderful experience.
1: So this season was about vehicles of hysteria and how these messages get passed on to us as media consumers. Uh, did you find that any of them overlapped with one another? And how so?
0: Well, that's a great question, Miranda. Thank you. Um, I felt like everything was overlapping in these ways that were often sort of disturbing for me. Um, each episode showed me that there is so much money to be made in making us afraid, making us angry, making us outraged. Um, I think the influencers episode and learning about Edward Bernays was a really, really, uh, Disturbing experience to know that uh, Freud's nephew was the one who was sort of deciding how consumers were going to react to products um, and that right right out the gate he was using uh, a political movement uh, movement for civil rights in order to. Um, get super rich, which he did. And um, so did all the companies that he was doing PR for. And then, you know, on the other side, the fake news industry, televangelism, these very right-wing movements that uh, have always operated from fascist scare tactics, which we learned a lot about from uh, Jason Stanley, uh, who wrote How Fascism Works and who was a guest on our show, and um, how... There's a lot of money to be made in frightening um, people (laughs) who are duped into believing that there is some sort of conspiracy, whether it be the Jewish conspiracy or whether it be some sort of COVID conspiracy or a liberal conspiracy or a gay conspiracy or anything that that sort of seeks to dethrone um, male, white, straight supremacy. Um, But both sides play on our very deep emotions. And whenever you're stirring up deep emotions, uh, you are getting a reaction that you can somewhat control. And when you know what a reaction is going to be, it can be really, really powerful. I think of, as a modern example, I think of Tucker Carlson um, recently with his, you know, call CPS on Uh, kids who are wearing masks outside. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, for me, Tucker Carlson's a provocateur. He knows what he's doing. We talked about it in fake news. He has very clearly in court proceedings stated that he is he does not believe what he says. And Fox News is not something that a reasonable person would believe in. Um, So I think of him as planning each of these outrages uh, as a way to outrage the left. And anything the left is outraged over, the right will do The opposite of now. Um, And so it's this really great symbiotic relationship between outrage on one side and outrage on the other. And it can work in um, liberal media as well. It's this outrage industry that we have going on all the time. And it can really break us apart. And it can really just make so much money for people uh, who are already
1: powerful in different ways. Mm Mm-hmm. Do you feel like there have been any figures that you have learned about that have been especially adept at combating those narratives that you're talking about? I mean, it'll
0: always be Fred Hampton. Mm-hmm. Um and Fred Hampton's Rainbow Coalition being uh his attempts to bring together different types of people who were otherwise enemies or at least um not working together in any kind of solidarity, he brought together um the Latin Kings mm-hmm. and um that was a quote unquote gang of um Latino people who were actually more like the Panthers and that they were working for uh, community progress. They were working, you know, to feed children. They were working against police brutality, um, poverty in general, workers' rights, things like that, which is exactly what the Panthers were doing. So there was a much easier solidarity there, but when... Fred Hampton met with uh, what we talked about in our Rednecks episode when he met with basically the hillbillies is what people were calling them um, as a derogatory name. People who had been formerly working in Appalachia and then the coal industries, you know, were fucking them. So they ended up moving uh, into the cities to find work. And, you know, they brought with them some real Confederate pride and uh, they... You know, eventually Fred Hampton went to one of their meetings and he discovered that what they were doing was also working toward education against police brutality, which they were experiencing because they were um, working class or they were poor. They looked poor. And um, he went there. He saw they were working for similar goals, um, but then he also saw they were flying the Confederate flag. And he said, you know, I want to work with you guys, but this is racist. And they said, no, it's not racist to us. It's part of Southern pride. We hear this again. We know this. And then Fred Hampton said, well, here's why this flag is offensive and why it is hurtful to us and why it will break up our solidarity. And they wanted to work with Fred Hampton. They, they, they wanted to work with the Panthers. They wanted to work with the Latin Kings. They saw the value in coming together in this rainbow coalition. Um, but what it took was them Deciding not to fly the flag anymore. You know, he said Fred Hamden said at least disavow white supremacy if you're going to keep flying that flag. And they said, no, we're just not going to fly it anymore. And um, I don't know. I always go back to him um, in times of any type of divisiveness that doesn't feel like it's helping our cause. It actually is holding back um, what could be a great deal of people power. And that does play into the hands of people who make a ton of money off of us all fucking hating each other.
1: Yeah. What were your favorite episodes to make this season? Or what do you feel like the most important Mm. subject was?
0: I think that my favorite episode to make might have been True Crime, Um, (laughs) and maybe that's just because it wasn't quite as challenging as some of the other ones. I also worked in True Crime for quite a while before making American Hysteria, and I always struggled with the morality of that, and I never felt comfortable doing it. It was just something that I... Totally fell into um, in a strange way, though, of course, I was a true crime person since I was as long as I can remember. But um, there was just something about being able to go back to these 90s events, especially like writing about JonBenet was so fulfilling in terms of being a writer and being able to try to like capture what it was like to have a relationship to this missing child as a child and and seeing it in the grocery store and these these images that kept coming up um, that I knew that a lot of people probably had a similar experience with since a lot of our listeners are pretty much in, in a similar age range um, but I think the other one I loved making was Disneyfication which isn't super surprising I feel like that's another slightly lighter episode, um, though it was also very, it's weird, it's weird to start to understand why we very likely uh, enjoy certain things based on our instincts. Uh, And that can be really uh, unnerving when you start to realize how much of an automatic being you are when you're reacting to, you know, in our Disneyfication episode, we talked about how we are drawn to things that are cute and that, that have the cute features of large eyes and big ears and floppy movements and all of those things. And uh, it's it's weird because you can feel that pull. You can understand, you know, you're attracted to a cute animal it is that's what the Internet is. And so <laughs> to realize that there's an instinctual drive behind so many of things we do is uh is really cool and really unnerving at the same time. And it really makes me question whether we have free will, but that's a longer conversation, probably.
1: <laughs> um, and it's so much guesswork. I mean, we don't
0: really understand our brains at all. No, we don't. And even on our show, I think it's important to just say, hey, everybody, I'm not. I don't know. I don't know. And that's like the end of every episode. I feel like it's like, I don't know. <laughs> um and it's easy to just want to trust somebody um, who who asks you to trust them like I do, but it's. Even the I'm doing my best, right? Like anybody else, I'm doing my best. I'm trying to take in as much information as I can, find what's relevant, find what feels like a, a good explanation and can hopefully move us forward, whatever that means in some way. Um, in terms of the most important episodes, I think televangelists was really important, Um mm. And the follow-up that we did about Black evangelicalism mm-hmm. was also so amazing. Uh, I was really surprised when I was doing the televangelist research. Um, I feel as if I should very much have not been surprised, not because I should have known personally, but because this should be common information. Mm-hmm. Um, it's really great uh, information to be armed with, although it's not going to change anyone's mind. Um But the whole uh, that abortion was a rallying point created by the moral majority and their cohorts uh, to hide or to create enough outrage to get enough uh, religious Christians into politics to try to get Reagan to put back in their ability to continue to have tax exemption while having segregation, just as a reminder. So. All of the abortion hysteria relates back to um, fundamentalists' attempts to continue to segregate their colleges. Mm-hmm. And that was, when I read that, I was like, oh my God, like, how, whoa. And I've been doing American Hysteria for, you know, a couple years at this point. And um, so that was. Felt really important because that was information that as soon as I learned it, I was just trying to tell everybody that I met just like, oh, my God, you guys. And so I think that that information is is huge to know and understand and also uh, can really illuminate some of the ways that those folks are still trying to keep people out of their colleges, queer people, trans Mm -hmm. people. Um, And uh, then I think the other One that was really important was influencers. And I'm sure there's more we can talk about there as we go
1: along. Yeah, sure can. You were talking about your past work in true crime and other podcasts that you've worked on. And I happen to know that you also hold a master's degree in poetry. (laughs) How has uh, how has your background as a poet influenced the writing of this show? Oh, I think so much
0: more than than anyone would really expect. And I think a large part of that is when you are a writer, not just a poet, but um, especially a poet, you try to say the most you can with the least amount of words. That's sort of the the code. (laughs) Um, And not that we not that we use the least amount of words (laughs) at American Hysteria, but um, there is. A sense of precision that comes with poetry, precision of language, precision of ideas, precision precision of images. Um, and I think that when you can be precise with your stories and with the way that you're painting um, a picture in people's minds, that it's it's. Very, It can be very, very affecting. And I think that that's, you know, there's a danger to rhetoric. Um, There's a power and a danger equally. And um, I try my best to wield that uh, for good, because if you're telling someone a story, this isn't any kind of a revolutionary thought, but it's more affecting than ever telling someone a a cold fact um, or any type of statistic or number and you can reach through to somebody's empathy. I love writing I really that part of American hysteria is really really easy for me and and brings me a lot of, um, joy like the way that we tried to do um the opening to the horror movies episode and even urban legends just as silly as that is but just really evoking what it feels like and i've just always wanted to remind people of their hearts as (laughs) as as, as that sounds but just you know bring people back into that place and i think that that's where a lot of growth can happen yeah yeah
2: Welcome to the Magical Overthinkers podcast, a show for thought spiralers exploring the subjects we can't stop overthinking about from celebrity worship to social media comparison. I'm your host, Amanda Montel. I am a textbook overthinker. I'm also an author and the host of the podcast Sounds Like a Cult. Every other Wednesday on the Magical Overthinkers podcast, I'll interview a charismatic expert guest about some confounding subject from the zeitgeist. Think narcissism, imposter syndrome, girl math, if you're like me and feel like the volume in your brain is just way too high sometimes, my hope is for this show to make some sense of the senseless. Listen to Magical Overthinkers now, wherever you get your podcasts.
1: What is your favorite genre? Scary movie. Of, <laughs> <laughs> what is your favorite genre of storytelling?
0: I think memoirs, you know, yeah. I really do. And teen dramas? Oh, Okay. All right. That's where you want to go. Okay. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) Um, I do want to talk about teen dramas. In fact, I mentioned to Miranda that I would like to talk about them. So working it in there. Thank you for weaving it in. Um, Teen dramas is also what I do to unwind. Um, Often with Miranda, we will watch teen dramas. Right now we're watching Cruel Summer. Oh, my God. Which is so good. It is so good. So if you like teen dramas, it's not even... It's, it's, like,
1: a step above, a, uh, like, a cheesy it's teen drama. Elevated, It's elevated teen drama in the vein of euphoria. Mm-hmm. And a little lower on the quality, I'd
0: say, than euphoria. Sure, yes. I mean, euphoria is, like, an incredible yes. piece of art. It's this true. is really good. Some This is somewhere in the middle of, of euphoria and uh, Pretty Little Liars. Right? What do
1: you like so much about teen drama, do you think? Because <laughs> I know the answer, but I think it's fun to ponder. Yes, t- yes,
0: yes, yes, ponder. yes,
1: yes. Um,
0: I, th- I spend a lot of time thinking about why I like teen dramas so much. Um, I always have. I grew up in the 90s and there were just a lot. That was a time where there was a lot more teen content, I feel like, and really good quality um, teen content that also didn't talk down to us. But I, I don't like being I don't like being taught any sort of lesson in my teen drama um i don't you know and i'm talking to you ryan murphy and yes i am talking about glee and how wonderful it was until it took a nosedive into your liberal agenda no really though um the first two seasons of glee were wonderful um but i i like the I like drama. I had a very teen drama. I feel like high school experience uh, in a lot of ways, and you know, a little skins, skins variety. But um, I've always really appreciated archetypes, and there's no real uh, better example of archetypes than than the repeating themes of horror movies, sure, and then also teen dramas, and they're not that different. Um, but there's something that I love about. The I like to ask what's people's favorite um, archetype from from teen drama, and mine is the well-read mean girl, mm-hmm. um, which you could get from Alison DiLaurentis of Pretty Little Liars, um, Cheryl from Riverdale. There's many examples, but uh, there's something about the elevation of the shows that I love so much because being a teenager, uh, and we talked about this in our episode uh, with Gail from Teenager Therapy, and How serious it is to be a teenager and how important those years are and that there's no there's no time in your life that feels bigger or more dramatic. And when you're a teenager, you really do believe that you see the truth of the world and you see things as they really are. And you feel that you're experiencing things that no one else has ever experienced. I know I certainly thought that about my own feelings. Um, And... I think teen dramas do a great job capturing that in a lot of ways because they really allow the drama to be honored in a Mm -hmm. sense where it's not like uh, it's not a snooty you know show where it's like oh my god this teenager again is you know whining about x y and z and of course there is so much of that like oh no middle class white kid whatever drama and and it's not so much like that anymore i mean euphoria is a great example but um yeah i really just enjoy the chance to rebel in any type of drama that's low stakes and, uh, and and really just for fun. And I enjoy anything that elevates the teenage experience. Uh, and I mean, it's just I like a spicy, spicy piece of media. And uh,
1: there's nothing spicier than a teen drama, in my opinion. This is true. <laughs> this was the first season that we had official interview episodes. So, do you have any dream guests? That you would want to have on the show. Hmm. Mine is Hanif Abdurraqib. (laughs) I would just like to just put that into the universe. Hanif, hello. Hanif, paging. Hanif Hanif Abdurraqib, paging Hanif.
0: (laughs) Um, Yeah, duh. Always and forever. I'm not entirely sure what we talk about, but I would talk about anything with that man uh, for any amount of time that he would allow me to. And it
1: doesn't matter. To be clear, this question has no boundaries. okay. Great! I think if it has they no boundaries. have to be alive, oh, you get one dead guest, okay, and three living guests. Can Mary Kate Ashley count as one guest? Yes. <laughs>
0: okay, definitely want to know what happened with Heath Ledger that <laughs> night. Um, Mary Kate,
1: <laughs> call me. <laughs>
0: call me. <laughs> you had very negative influences on me as a teenager, <laughs> and I love you guys. Um, no, I. Pr- I probably shouldn't choose Mary-Kate and Ashley, although I would love to hear their side of the story. I think everyone would. Okay, well, then Mary-Kate and Ashley. Okay. and Dream Guests, I would really like to have on, in terms of just an American Hysteria guest, he uh, dissed and dismissed us. Just kidding. He may not have gotten our, <laughs> our request. Include. Dissed and dismissed Kurt Anderson, who wrote Fantasyland. Kurt. Um, and I just think Fantasyland is is just probably the biggest influence in terms of just a single text. It's a 400-year history of um american fantastical thinking it's 500 it's a 500 uh year <laughs> it's a 500 year history of uh american fantastical thinking and it has taught me just a- an incredible amount so i'd really love to talk to kurt anderson um who else well fred hampton Duh. <laughs> oh he's your dad yeah. he's definitely yeah fred hampton for sure or james baldwin Mm. yeah. Um Rilke, the poet, Federico Garcia Lorca maybe, Socrates. Yeah. <laughs> I do. Yeah. Yeah. Don't call me out on liking Socrates, okay? <laughs> don't call me out. Don't at me. <laughs> that was a big part of my uh yeah, a part of my philosophical journey as well.
1: Um You have one more living guest.
0: <sighs> let's see here. I don't know. It's it's weird because we also we talked to some of the people that Would have been in my
1: dream, like my dreams. It's so wild. And we're going to take a call from the public now. (laughs) This is uh, from our Patreon. Um, Speaking of dream guests this season, we talked to Carmen Maria Machado. um, And Erica from Patreon says she just listened to the interview with Carmen Maria Machado. She loved it. She says, "I too thirst hard for James Brolin and Margot Kidder in the original Amityville Horror." My question for you is, are there any other couples that you'd follow into a haunted house to make out with?
0: Wonderful question, Erica. Absolutely. (laughs) Um, Really. Thank you. Um, Yes. I think that as um, maybe gross as it is, I'm going to go with Laura Dern and Nick Cage in Wild at Heart. um, (laughs) That Miranda and I actually dressed up as last Halloween. Uh, But...
1: Yeah, they would follow Nick Cage into a haunted house. Just, just
0: that Nick Cage. I feel like
1: I trust Laura.
0: Laura's gonna <laughs> whatever. I don't know. That's I trust Laura
1: of. enough to well, to protect me from Nick.
0: I don't think I need protection.
1: Oh. <laughs> Gross. I know. Don't tell the teenagers
0: that. <laughs> okay. Oh no! Don't tell them. <laughs> uh, what about you? You got somebody better?
1: Oh, I was not prepared for this. <laughs> Does Samira Wiley and Kamiko Glenn on Orange is the New Black count for this, or is that too easy an answer? Yeah, I'll let you have it. Thank you.
0: I'll let you have it.
1: (laughs) I'd follow Samira Wiley anywhere. Uh, This is Craig, and he wants to know if there's any topic you've thought of covering but feel you are unable to... Based on it being just too much information to even attempt to cover or too triggering for you personally or just too horrible (laughs) a topic for you to even want to cover.
0: Well, actually, uh, we wrote an entire two part episode that we never released because the timing, the timing ended up being really bad. And so I stand by our decision not to release it. But it's called Outrage Culture. And um, I think just from that uh phrase are you getting outraged because <laughs> most people would be um i think it's really important for me to talk about how afraid i am of back- backlash mm-hmm. um and really own up to that uh because i think backlash is extremely necessary and we talk about cancel culture of course and and our outrage culture episode was about both um both parts of Of our political structure and and the different outrages that that have provoked both sides into uh, behaviors that are not uh, helpful. Mm -hmm. So you might imagine why that's scary. Um, You might imagine why talking to a large group of people uh, consistently about political issues might be scary. Um, And so I think it's important to just talk about how I am really scared of screwing up and. Of making people angry and most of all of making people sad or Mm -hmm. feel um, feel badly in any way, which I think is to my detriment sometimes and is to many of our detriments. Um, And uh, it's something I'm still trying to figure out how to talk about. And Mm -hmm. I'd really like to talk about it more, um, meaning especially the ways that we deal with one another in liberal Leftist circles, and that's a really large topic. But I think more and more people are starting to have more nuanced conversations about the ways that we are, um, through outrage, we're breaking away the solidarity that that could exist sort of in the rainbow coalition way. Um, so that's that's uh part of what that episode's about. And, and one day, one day we'll figure out the right way to do it,
1: yeah. Yeah, what was your biggest takeaway from this season? What do you feel? Having finished it. That's a really
0: it's a really big question. And I think for me, uh, it's humility and usually is humility, Um, just like everyone. I like it. I think my persona, my persona (laughs) on American Hysteria is a lot more uh, nuanced and tender and sweet than I may be off the mic and can confirm can confirm. Just like anyone, I can be self righteous, um, and I can be judgmental, and I can be sour and mean, and I don't like that. And it comes from being on the internet most of the time, <laughs> but um, and that that's that's to the point, right? Of of there is this uh, there is this issue with trying to. Win and mm-hmm. trying to be the best activist, trying to be the least problematic or trying to call out the most people. And I'm too scared, pretty much usually, to argue on the internet. So I avoid it. Uh, mm-hmm. But there is this uh, competitive Darwinian uh, mm-hmm. survival of the fittest. And in this context, it can mean um, the voices that tend to be the most rigid. Uh, in that mistakes and learning and growth are no longer uh, invited. And uh, there are plenty of, of times in which that's not an appropriate thing to take and that people just need to be removed from having any type of a platform. And there are other times when having restorative justice as an option can be
1: so powerful and can create such solidarity. Um and if we're aspiring to perfection, then we're never going to get anywhere.
0: Yeah. And if we're aspiring to perfection, we're lying. Yeah. Um, and I feel that I'm not that that my obsession and my my ability to craft everything I say by having a show, like even now I'm stumbling over my words. I don't know exactly how to say things. Uh, I don't want to screw up. I want to make sure I'm saying everything carefully. I like to call myself a king caveat. Um, and a lot of that is a beautiful, amazing, awesome thing that we are all being careful and considerate of what we're saying to each other. Um, that is at its core... To me, good and right. Um, But what doesn't feel as as um, productive is when so much ego is involved in our activism and when our activism begs us to be um, perfect in a way that feels like capitalism and feels like
1: unattainable.
0: It's totally unattainable. And if you're not making mistakes, you're not taking risks. And if you're not taking risks,
1: then. And we should be aspiring towards growth, not perfection. And we're going to take a call from the public now. (laughs) This is uh, from our Patreon. And this one's from Constance. Constance. Constanza. I'm so sorry. We love your name, though. We do. They ask the following question. You once mentioned, if I remember correctly, that you had a phase earlier in your life where you were a spiritual seeker and less of a skeptic than you are now. What were your experiences? Was it a special time in your life? And what did you get out of it? So we're kind of going back to that teenager question. Mm. Early 20s. Chelsea. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Channel it. Go. (sighs)
0: So... I've mentioned, you know, my my uh, relationship with my dad and he was very much a Gnostic Christian, um, but he taught me a lot about, to put it in Rob Bresny terms, the universe is conspiring to shower you with blessings um, in his book, Pronoia. That's something that I can uh, call back to <laughs> you during my seeker phase. And I still I love Rob Bresney, I don't care. Um, that's free will astrology guy. Um, but. He did teach me that the universe was invested in my happiness um, and books like The Alchemist talk Mm. about that um, and that there is sort of a benevolent God. I wasn't raised with a scary God Mm. and that's like that makes all the difference in the world to my relationship to spirituality, you know, the God that. Is from from Gnosticism is much more about um, an emanation of light and love and and the you know the things that seem cheesy but are also so deeply comforting. Especially the idea that there was some kind of a higher being or energy or whatever you want to say that that was there to guide me and that I had a path. And I think that's the biggest change as I as I've gotten older is that I don't necessarily believe that I have a path, and that's. Not a fun thing to lose. (laughs) Um, It's really not a fun thing to lose. And anyone who who has had that experience can probably relate to the devastating loss of of the confidence that what you're doing is part of a greater plan. And um, so the things I was into anything from past lives of my own to the Akashic records and that that you could possess all knowledge in the known universe or rather that I'm not teal swan that you could you know, I'm not teal swan, but I just believe that you can tap into the one mind. Um, but I'm not teal swan. So uh, <laughs> but, you know, any yeah, if it was there, I probably did it. I probably had some involvement in it. I made runes, which <laughs> I made. And ca- I went to the beach and collected pebbles and then drew with Sharpie the runic symbols and then learned how to cast runes and read them. Um charming and now a potent tool of white supremacy um but everybody's getting back to like odin and all this goddamn like what was i doing with like freaking super duper white mysticism from the past is like i didn't know you didn't know it was 2009 (laughs) um but you know tarot cards. Certainly, I I read tarot cards for years and years on the road. It was sort of my uh a trade that I like to do along with stick and poke tattoos in my past <laughs> life. It's a <laughs> fake gutter punk uh <laughs> poser through and through. And I don't know, seeking the truth has always been. I mean, that's why I liked poetry because I felt that poetry um, was a way to to seek, express, and and hopefully find. The truth, which I no longer believe in, in truth necessarily. I I mean, I obviously believe that there are truer things than than some things. And uh, I believe in science and all those different things. Um. (laughs) (laughs) Just to be clear. (laughs) Um, But, yeah, I, I was on the road for years doing this kind of thing and trying to find You know, honestly, so much of it was just trying to find peace. And I equated peace with um, a lot of different spiritual concepts when really I just needed to find a way to, like, not be in, like, uh, grinding anxiety every moment of my life, um, which ended up being a combination of uh, medication, therapy, and uh, (laughs) getting out of certain types of relationships. Um, But I don't know. I think I miss it is the truth. And um, I think that when I experienced the death of my grandfather, that was a moment um, that whatever kind of faith I had left was sort of like sucked out of the room. Um, Because death can do that. I think death can do one of two things. And that's either reinforce your faith deeply or strip it away. Um, And, you know, that was while I was making the show. So I was already very much in like a skeptical mindset, but I still had um, kind of like a connection to some sort of greater um, source of some kind. Uh, and then after that, it just felt like, uh, the world felt very mathematical in, in that way of like, for me, I look at the ground and I see ants and ants scare me because it's like, I know, <laughs> ants scare me because it's like, you just watch them be math you watch mm-hmm. creatures be math and, uh, <laughs> and it freaks me out, you know, because it, it does, it does take away, uh, you know, even when you come down to like beauty, the experience of beauty can be like broken down mathematically. And, um, which now I feel is no less beautiful or cool mm-hmm. than, than anything else. But I think that that, that realization and, and when you experience, um, Death and seeing somebody pass away, um, there's so much uh, there's so much mysticism around that, and you expect it to be a certain way and to to tell you something about life um, and it does, but it's not often I think what you were hoping it would be. Um, and so that was a big turning point for me, and I think I'm finally getting back some of that through this season actually. Mm. How so? Well, I think I've been intentionally um, – I'm going to shout out Alex Steed from <laughs> Wire Dads, Dads um, because he's such a wonderful person um, that I've been talking to about a lot of this stuff. And he's uh, really, really brilliant uh, through talking with him and seeing the ways that he values um, spirituality and, and it being a reminder of the way that I used to value it, even through people like Eckhart Tolle. I mean – um <laughs> complicated man uh, uh you know i obviously don't like our capitalistic turtles yeah complicated <laughs> very boring person <laughs> it's like as soon as you get rid of your ego you're not fun <laughs> welcome to my TED talk. (laughs) My poetry teacher was like, in in school, I was like, all I really want to do is just like, get rid of my ego. And he was like, don't do that. (laughs) You're never going to write a poem again. If you get rid of your ego, you're just going to sit there melting into the world, which is dope. Um, (laughs) But I... um, So I do believe that every culture is always going to find some kind of folk magic. I mean... Bless my queers. Y'all love astrology. (laughs) You all like astrology. We like these personality tests that are based in nothing Mm -hmm. at all, which is fine. I love them, too. Um, Getting to know yourself in any way. It's wonderful. Uh, but, you know, I'm not particularly a believer in astrology. I think it's really fun. I
1: know a lot about it. Um, science and all of those, those kinds of things. Yeah,
0: you know, just basic things like that. But also, I don't... Absolutely. Science fucking sucks a lot of the time. True. Um As we've learned on this season of American <laughs> Hysteria. But basically all I mean is that we're always going to be looking for something beyond our tangible materialistic reality um because we're human beings and we need to answer big questions and we're the only animals that have the consciousness to have to wonder why we're here
1: that we know of
0: that we know of I know I'm sure every pig is contemplating there that's exactly right I know maybe that's how to get back to spirituality is follow the pigs that's right yeah. absolutely mm-hmm. So in knowing that we need folk magic and knowing that we need uh, or maybe not need isn't even the right word that we're programmed to find some kind of religion and then religion creates our culture, uh, our belief structure will create our culture. And so I think knowing that that's a part of me, um, even beyond my past and how I was raised, that it's a part of each of us in our like very deepest like animal bellies, I wanted to find something to replace it, something that works with the idea that we know nothing. and unfortunately, I came back to, if you guys remember season two's finale on mind control, in which I detailed my time in a not cult. <laughs> it is not a cult, not a cult.. <clears throat> <clears throat> Um, I attended these when I was uh, about uh, 11, 14 and 16 years old at different these intervals. And they taught us that life is empty and meaningless and and it's it's empty empty and meaningless that it's empty and meaningless. Thank you. And um, unfortunately, uh, as as destabilizing as that is to learn as an 11 year old, uh, (laughs) (laughs) it can uh, it can carry through in some ways that I feel are valuable. Um, And. So what I do when I'm trying to get in touch with my spirituality <laughs> is I go for walks. I'm walking all the time. I'm a walker. And uh, I, I try to do this thing where I start walking out of out of my different identities or my different um, experiences from the past, who I think I am, all those different things um, until I can reach a point where I'm no longer filled with stories. And that was actually something I wanted to talk about in the Urban Legends episode, but I can't go on and on and on. Um, And that is that stories, that we hold all these stories in our bodies all the time, and that I think that it is driving us to madness. Um, Mm -hmm. (laughs) And why wouldn't it? Because we're not built to have this much information coming into our bodies at any given time. And so I think going a place um, to, to step out of even your deepest held stories, whatever that means.
1: And so many of those stories are conflicting, mm-hmm. which is yes. really yes. hard to hold on to. Yes.
0: And especially if if you aren't someone who takes simple answers, um, mm-hmm. then the stories that we have to juggle around in ourselves. Obviously, there's a great deal of anxiety in our generation and the next. And and if, if I was going to posit why that could be, I think it would be that we are so inundated with stories. Or that we
1: don't have any money or property. <laughs> That's
0: really true as
1: well. Um, so what I like to do is
0: try to get to a point in myself where... I feel storyless, and that's really comforting to me because if I can't believe in any type of entity or universal energy or any of the things that feel really hard for me to believe in now, um, but I say that with absolute respect for everyone else because I have no idea what's happening ever on Earth or in the universe, so let's be clear, (laughs) but for me, um, those are pretty inaccessible at this point. And I think that nothingness is a really comforting thing. And I don't mean like, oh, we're hurling through, you know, black nothingness, which is also true. So we better get used to it. (laughs) Um, But just the idea that you can get to a point where you don't have meaning. Um, And I think for some people, that's really scary. That would have been really scary for me at a different time. But how comforting to not mean
1: anything. Um, And stories are really bonding and really divisive at the same time. So it. There's something to be said for bonding over a story, but there's also something to be said for bonding over storylessness. If we can separate ourselves from the stories every once in a while, then we can come together in this full human capacity. Exactly,
0: And that's what it is. It's just this deep, deep humanness. And, you know, you could easily say, well, I can't leave my story behind. My story is who I am. Absolutely. Our stories make us. You're no one without your stories. You're no one without the stories other people tell about you. That's what makes you. But every person deserves to walk out of themselves completely. Everyone deserves to, like, pull off their fucking skin and just be a really chill skeleton.
1: <laughs> and then you can examine the stories that you've exactly. you been told yeah. as a skeleton.
0: Exactly. You can You can be the skeleton in the classroom. Um, but, you know, that's an insane metaphor that I decided to go with. I liked it. Thank you. But I think just unbuttoning yourself and and shedding that everything about yourself until you're walking away from everything you are, have been, expect yourself to be and everything you've been told you are and. There's just something really comforting for me sitting in that moment where I can look at the world and that's the thing is when you can step out of everything and you can exist in this humanness as much of a hippie as I sound like Mm -hmm. the world around you can really light up it can really like I know that you guys know what I'm talking about when you catch yourself on on a on a, a cool evening and you're walking and you're not even listening to music or anything and you just like you just become attuned to your surroundings and something like happens inside of you where you can really see things you can feel the colors of things and feel beauty and and feel calm and peace and it's not going to last very long so it's not like you get to live there and never do anything and never create important stories or or listen to stories but you come back feeling that
1: you can bear it well thank you so much for joining me today chelsea and answering these questions Um, And thank you for everything you do. I know you're really an important voice for a lot of people.
0: Thank you, Miranda. And thanks for everything you've done this season. It's been a tremendous help and just a tremendous uh, uh, chance to work with you and and work with Riley and work with Rod. And thank you to our patrons who ask questions. Yes, thank you, patrons. And uh, I just feel really grateful. This was American Hysteria. And in case you didn't know, Miranda's band Kuinka, that's K-U-I-N-K-A, just came out with a new record that you definitely need to listen to. It's called Shiny Little Corners, and it is an absolute and true
1: delight. (laughs) Thank you, Chelsea.
0: And never fear, we'll be back for a few weeks for shorter, more concentrated off-season episodes and more interviews, too, so stay tuned. If you liked the musings of this episode, consider joining our Patreon community to get a whole podcast of that kind of stuff, where I go on walks to different places and talk about the things I've been thinking about that week. You can also watch our whole live show and listen to a few other minisodes as well. We'll have more announcements about Patreon soon, so stay tuned for that as well make sure you come and follow us on social media. It's at Amer Hysteria for Twitter and at American Hysteria Podcast on Instagram. Huge thanks to our sound designer for this episode, Clear Como Studios, and thank you for a fantastical season, everybody out there. We all hope you got something valuable out of it. We know we certainly did. And so until next time, we hope you have a great week.